So we get to Exodus 17, verse 1 through 3. It tells us, Then all the congregation of the children of Israel set out on their journey from the wilderness of sin. Again, that's the wilderness of Sinai, not the wilderness of committing sins. But according to the commandment of the Lord. And they encamped in Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people contended with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. So Moses said to them, Why do you contend with me? Why do you tempt the Lord? And the people thirsted there for water, and the people complained against Moses and said, Why is it you have brought us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? A couple of things for us to gather here. Again, in the middle of verse 1, it tells us, According to the commandment of the Lord. Why did the nation of Israel come here? Why did they stop here? God told them so. Again, maybe for small children, hopefully none of us as adults, but as you look at a GPS on your phone, you might get tricked into thinking, man, is there a huge red triangle right in front of my car telling me where to go, right? Maybe your kids think that when they look at your GPS, they look out the window, hey, where's the big triangle telling us where to go? But that's literally what the nation of Israel had. They had a huge pillar of cloud by day and a huge pillar of fire by night. And it was easy. How do we follow the will of God? Follow the pillar. That's all you got to do. Where the pillar goes, I go. Where the fire goes, I stay, right? That's all they had to do. So God himself has brought them to this place and had them camp out in Rephidim. That word Rephidim, it means rest or a place to stay. In a sense, they've come to a rest stop on their journey from Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land. And I don't know about you guys, but with three small children, when you stop at a rest stop on the highway, it is anything but restful, right? It's one of the craziest places you go. There's tons of cars in the parking lot. You get into the place and there's all sorts of people and characters, right? Walking around the place. You're getting their hands even tighter. You want coffee and nobody goes in any line in any restaurant except the Dunkin' Donuts or the Starbucks, right? And it's like 30 people deep with two workers and it's anything but restful. And it seems like this area of rest was going to be anything but restful for the nation of Israel. You see, in this place, they're going to have their emotions come up and bubble up to the point where they are willing to fight with Moses, where they are willing to pull up weapons. Moses says they're ready to stone me. They're going to pull out rocks ready to contend with and fight with Moses. And here in this area of Rephidim, this area of rest, they will also encounter their first battle. The first warfare that they will ever have to deal with will be in the area of rest. And there's a common theme that we'll see throughout this morning's Bible study that what we think is going to bring us rest and what in reality is going to bring us rest is sometimes two different things, right? Sometimes you think, oh, once I go on that vacation, then, then I will find rest. Once I get the hammock, once I have that drink, once I have this party, once I retire, then then I will be at rest. Once I watch the news, once I just relax on the couch and watch Netflix, once I put the kids to bed, then, then I will find rest. And what we're going to see here for the nation of Israel, and it's the same for us, the only place we will find rest 
is if we're eating the bread of life and drinking the living water that comes from Jesus Christ. That's the only way we're going to find rest for our souls. That's the only way we're going to find satisfaction in our life. Again, verse 2, the people, they contend with Moses. That word is to literally fight, to wrestle. They're wrestling first verbally with him, and they're telling him, give us water that we may drink. Again, there's two million of them coming to Moses saying, give us water, we're thirsty. But Moses, one of the character traits of him that I often overlook is how often he first and foremost turns to the Lord. Whenever people come against him, he turns to the Lord. When trials come up, he turns to the Lord. And again, Moses, Moses is looking at the people saying, guys, I'm, I'm just like you guys. I'm following the same pillar that you guys are following. I don't know why he brought us here. I don't have any water hiding in my pockets for two million of you. And yet they're wanting to fight with him. You see, when we go through trials and difficulties in this life, we will be prone to look to men to solve our problems. We are very quick to turn to people and so slow to turn to the Lord. May we be wise like Moses that in difficulty the first person he turns to is not Aaron, his brother. It's not other wise men. The first person he turns to is the Lord. He tells him, why do you contend with me? Why are you trying to wrestle with me? Why are you tempting the Lord your God? And again, God will bring us. God himself will bring us to places where we thirst. God himself, he's going to bring us to places where our emotions build up and come out to the breaking point where we desire to wrestle. Again, all the men here, I hope that you would be willing to fight if you see that yourself, your children, and your livelihood are about to die of thirst. That's a good thing. That's the right thing to do. The problem is that they wanted to fight and wrestle with men instead of praying and wrestling with the Lord. Again, that's the first thing Moses does. He turns to the Lord. He has two million people complaining about him. And what does Moses turn to? Social media, his gossip circle, his, his wife, his kids. Oh, I can't believe what these people are saying about me. No, he turns to the Lord. And again, the scene, the people are here fighting and complaining with Moses when there's literally, if it's during the day, there's a huge pillar of cloud literally right behind them. Or if it's at night, the only reason they can see each other's faces is because there's a huge pillar of fire at night. And yet they're looking to Moses saying, Moses, you provide a way for us. Complaining. God himself is there and yet they're complaining against Moses. And family, we are prone to complain. We're given to complaining. It's not very easy for us to give compliments. It's not very easy for us to say please and thank yous. That's why we teach our kids to say please and thank yous. I hope none of you are here teaching your kids, this is how you complain. All right, honey? This is how you complain. You say, I don't want mac and cheese. Yeah, I don't want mac and cheese. I want pizza. And then when I give you pizza, I want you to say, I don't want pizza. I want chicken nuggets, right? This is how you complain. No. We teach them gratitude. We teach them to be content with whatever they have because we're prone to it. And when we are prone to complain and murmur, it's evidence that we are far too self-focused and we care far too much about our own cares and our own comforts. 
when we're not prone to complaining, it reveals that we are caring about God and God's glory. Often when we complain, it's not, man, there should have been more people at church today. Man, there should have been more people at the men's taking study. Man, I should have shared the gospel with more people today. No, we complain about the smallest things. Man, it's, it's too hot in here. It's too tepid, right? They should put the AC at 68. That's where it should be. It's the perfect temperature. Oh, it's too cold in here, right? They should put the AC at 75, whatever it may be. You look at Saul and David, and the difference is that David was consumed with God's name being protected and God's glory being given to him. Saul's obsession was his name being protected and glory being given to his name. But verse 4, we see again, Moses, who does he cry out to? He cries out to the Lord. What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. Again, Moses, he doesn't fight against the people, right? He sees them all pulling out stones. He doesn't pull out the rod of God and say, you want a piece of this, right? He says, if I could wipe out an entire Egyptian army, you bet I can wipe you guys out. You guys want some, right? No. He cries out to God. He had two million people complaining about him, and he cries out to God. This is a mark of humility and a mark of wisdom. You can write down James chapter 1, and in verse 1, it tells us we should be joyful in trials. And then in verse 5, it tells us in the midst of the trial, if any of us lack wisdom, let him ask of God. Who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Again, family, when we're in a season where we're thirsty, when we're in a season that we're not satisfied with what's going on around us, we should first and foremost cry out to God and ask him for wisdom. When we're at a place that our emotions are bubbling up and about to burst, we should wrestle with the Lord and say, God, what should I do with this? Lord, is this justified? Again, God, our emotions are not necessarily the enemy. Our emotions, Jim Gallagher with the young adults, he was talking about how emotions, it's like seasoning on a meal. And God has given us emotions so that we wouldn't be robots, right? So that we can enjoy life better. And a meal is better when it's well seasoned. But now what happens if you open the sazon completa, right? And you just take off the top and just dump it all on there, right? It's ruined. I haven't seen anybody hungry and they just pour your bowl of sazon completa, right? And pour some martel and says, hey, just go for it. Just drink it, right? It's going to be delicious. No, that's supposed to add to life. That's not the way we should be making our decisions. So when we feel the emotion bubbling over, we should turn to the Lord and say, Lord, what should I do with this? Lord, is this righteous indignation? Lord, should I pray? Lord, I'm brokenhearted. What's the right way to help someone? What's the right course of action for me? And we can save ourselves from a lot of regret by crying out to God first and foremost. When situations and people are out of our control, the way we react to things is so important. So important. We can't control people complaining about us. We can't control those brief moments when we get all riled up and we're full of anger or jealousy or different things. But now how we deal with those things is going to add to life or it's going to take away from that. And we see Moses, even in his crying out to the Lord, he's not saying, God, get them. Hey, God, can you turn into the pillar of fire and just sort of ping pong around all their tents, right, and show them who's boss? I just says, Lord, what are we going to do? They're almost ready to stone me. Lord, what shall I do with the people? Robert Jameson, he says his language, instead of any betraying signs of resentment 
or vindication against the people who have given him cruel and unmerited treatment, it was an expression of anxiousness, wishing to know what was the best thing to be done in the circumstances. Again, Moses, he just wanted to see the people's needs met. That's what he wanted. He wasn't just mad that they were angry. No, he wanted to see their needs met. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 and 45, let's turn there. Important scripture for us. Important scripture for us today. Matthew chapter 5, verse 44 and 45. We'll start in verse 43. And it says, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, Love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good. And he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Again, family, if we're here and saying, I'm going to heaven when I die, you're a son or daughter of God. And if you're a son or daughter of God, this is the way we should be acting and reacting to our enemies, those who use us, and those who persecute us. It's to pray for them, to love on them. To bless them. That's the attitude we should have. In Romans chapter 12 verse 21 it tells us do not be overcome by evil but overcome evil with good. Again Moses didn't bring out the rod and start knocking off heads. That's not what he did. He prayed. He cried out to God and said Lord how can we fulfill this need. There's so much wisdom in handling things in a biblical fashion. And we're going to see the Lord answer Moses in a way No one would have ever thought. I don't think in a million hours of meetings, of roundtable discussions, I don't think any of us would have come with this solution faced with two million people who are thirsty with no water in the middle of a desert. Verse 5, the Lord says to Moses, go on, right? This is God's prescription for the problem. Go on before the people. Take with you some of the elders of Israel. Take in your hand the rod which you struck the river and go. Behold, I stand before you there on the rock in Horeb and you shall strike the rock and water will come out of it that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel, right? Can you imagine being there with Moses as he's getting the advice with how to deal with the situation? Moses, the people are thirsty. Yes, Lord. There's, there's two million of them. Yes, Lord. Okay, I want, you to, I want you to take the leaders, okay? I want you to grab your stick, okay? And I want you to hit that rock. Uh, God, I'm, I'm sort of missing something here, right? We don't need to play the drums, right? We don't need a band. What we need is some water. Last time I hit a stick against a rock, the stick broke, right? That's all basically what happened. And again, when we cry out to God, he may give us a prescription to our problem that we had never thought of. Or perhaps it's even a spiritual prescription to the spiritual problem that we're going through. Now again, the application for us with this, that's now where we have those big coral stones out there for you to walk outside and grab sticks and just start smacking rocks. That's not the application for us. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we can turn there and the Bible itself gives us the interpretation and even the application for us here In Exodus chapter 17, with the Lord providing water for the people by Moses striking the rock. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, this is the 
portion of scripture we've turned to quite often the past few chapters. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 1. It tells us, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, all ate the same spiritual food, all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank of that spiritual rock, capitalized, that followed them. And that rock was Christ. But with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples, to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted, and do not become idolaters as were some of them. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play, nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ, as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor complain, as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now all these things happen to them as examples, and they are written for our admonition, upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall." Again, there's a great warning to us. Paul, he's writing to the church of Corinth, who is a very sinful church and a very carnal church. A church that was fueled by the flesh. A church that was having problems with sexual immorality within the members of their church. A church that was having problems with drunkards and covetousness and fornication and murmuring within their own church. So here, Paul's warning them, saying, hey... The nation of Israel, they were baptized through water and through the Spirit. They passed through the Red Sea, baptism, and they passed through the cloud, baptism of the Holy Spirit. They ate the same spiritual food. They drank the same spiritual drink. They had the manna from God. They had the water from the spiritual rock, and that rock was Christ. So again, who is the rock? The rock is Christ. And now the warning to us in verse 5 is that even though they had the protection of God, even though they had the providence of God, even though they had the blessings of God throughout the whole wilderness, they were not well-pleasing to God. That's a great question for us to ask ourselves this morning. Are you today living a life that's well-pleasing to God? The problem with the church of Corinth is that they thought, hey, I got baptized a long time ago. It's okay. I got filled with the Holy Spirit. It's a, a long time ago. It's okay. I have, I've had spiritual food. I've had encounters with the rock. I've had encounters with Christ long ago. It's okay. And Paul's warning them, hey, all the nation of Israel, they had the very same things in their past that you're claiming, and yet they were not well-pleasing to God. Instead, they became idolaters, they became fornicators, they became murmurers and tempters of Christ. Again, what a warning to us this morning. God can be providing for us, God can be protecting us, but that does not mean that we are well-pleasing to the Lord. So this rock, right, we know it's Christ Jesus. That rock was Christ. A couple verses, you can write these down. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 3 through 4, it says, For I proclaim the name of the Lord ascribes greatness to our God. He is the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways 
our justice a God of truth and without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Our God is the rock. He's the only one that is pure justice. He's the only one that there is no injustice in him and in him there is truth. Again, family, as our world is thirsty, as our world is hungry for justice and crying out against injustice, give them the rock. And I'm not talking about Dwayne Johnson. I'm talking about Jesus, right? That's what I'm talking about. Give them Christ Jesus. He's the only one that's going to answer all the problems in our world today. We should stop looking towards men and we should stop telling other people to look at a man and we should be telling people to look at Christ. Let's turn to Psalm 18. And here's Psalm 18 a, a few, quite a few times. The author here talks about the rock. The rock. Psalm 18, Psalm 18, verse 1 and 2. It says, I will love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength, in whom I will trust. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. So shall I be saved from my enemies. Verse 31. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? Verse 46. He says again, the Lord lives, blessed be my rock, and let the God of my salvation be exalted. Finally, in Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, it says, Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I lay in Zion for a foundation, a stone, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation, and whoever believes will not act hastily. Family, that rock is Christ Jesus. And the only way we're going to find satisfaction in this life, the only way we're going to find our thirst quenched in this life is to turn to the rock that is higher than I. And just as Moses struck the rock and water flowed out for all of Israel to drink and be satisfied, so Jesus Christ, the rock, was struck once and once only. By Moses and by the law of Moses, so that from him would flow the water to fulfill our spiritual thirst. Again, we shouldn't be angry when people in this world are thirsty. When people in this world are looking for answers, right? I think more than ever, we're seeing that there's not just injustice in our social system or injustice in our political system, but even in our economy, even in the stock market, right? There's a double standard, And people are turning around saying, I'm thirsty. I want to make this right. I am not satisfied with what's going on today. The only place where we're going to find satisfaction, it's in Jesus Christ. That's why, again, the people are murmuring and complaining, ready to kill Moses. And Moses cries out to the Lord. Problem is given, the satisfaction and the fix to the problem right away. And yet, where do we go? We go to the people. Right? We go with our rocks, with our complaints, and we say, we're thirsty. We want this, right? May we turn to the Lord. In John chapter 4, we turn there, right? We know what the rock is, so what's the water? Because none of us are going to be out there smacking rocks or hitting Jesus and expecting water to come out. What are we talking about, Zach? John chapter 4, Jesus here gives us the answer. And again, John chapter 4, such a special 
chapter and interaction here. In biblical times, women, they were looked down upon. Women were like cattle that you would just purchase or would just be a part of your life. Then you have Samaritans, which the Jewish people looked down upon like they were subhuman. They were below being human. So now Jesus sits down to meet with a Samaritan woman. And not that it was low enough that she was Samaritan and a woman, but she was known throughout the whole town as a promiscuous woman. As a woman who would sleep around, as a woman who has had several failed marriages and even now is living in fornication. And this is the first person that Jesus decides to sit down with and speak with and reveal that he is the Christ. He is the Messiah. He's the chosen one. He's the only one that's going to bring satisfaction to this world. In John chapter 4, verse 13 and 14 Jesus answered and said to her, whoever drinks of this water will never thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Again, family, this world leaves us in a constant state of thirst. Because our thirst and our desires, they can't be quenched. Can't be fulfilled even with the good things in this world. Some people, they try to find their satisfaction in a family, in marriage, in kids and grandkids. Those are great things. Those are beautiful things. But that will not bring us the satisfaction that can only come from Jesus Christ. And again, when we come to him, when we believe in him, He creates in us not a cistern that's capable of holding water, but He creates in us a spring which will spring up everlasting life. That now we can get that same water and we can give it to someone else saying, Hey, if you're thirsty, come and drink from the living water. In John chapter 7, a couple pages to the right, it tells us there in verse 37 and 39, Again, it's incredible. It tells us there on the last day, that great day of the feast. So they're having a feast, a celebration for the way God provided for their forefathers in Egypt, in the wilderness, and throughout their history. And one of the things they would do in the feast is that they would pour out water, being reminded how God poured water out of a rock to fulfill the needs for the nation of Israel. And in the middle of this feast, in the middle of what's going on, Jesus stands up and he cries out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. You see, Jesus, he doesn't just give a proclamation of truth, but he gives an invitation at the same time. Again, picture if you would, you're at a wedding, right? There's that brief moment. Some people, they cut it out of their weddings, but there's that brief moment, right? If anyone has something to say, let them speak now, forever hold their peace. And no one's supposed to talk then, right? That's what we're thinking. We keep going. Imagine if someone would stand up at that moment and start shouting and screaming, right? What a scene it would cause. And that's literally what Christ is doing here. 
They're used to the status quo of how this feast is supposed to go on. This is the time. They pour out the water. Then this is what happens. And in the middle of that, he stands up and he proclaims, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Family, are you thirsty this morning? Are you not satisfied with this world and what this world has offered you? Perhaps you're saved here and you've forgotten that the only place of true satisfaction, it's inside. It's spending time in God's word. And you're trying to fulfill that with other things. And what you've ended up doing is you've gunked up that fountain that's supposed to be flowing out rivers of water. You've gunked it up with the flesh. You've gunked it up with bitterness or anger and pride. And it's about to blow up. You feel like you're going to blow up inside. And we need to turn and believe in him. Our life needs to show that we believe in him. Back in John chapter 4, Jesus tells the Samaritan woman, Hey, this is the way to worship me. In verse 24, he says, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. If we're here and we say, man, I love God. God is God and I want to worship him. So... I worship him how, however I feel. You know, me and God, we got, we got like our own thing going on. Doesn't cut it. He says, those that worship me must. The only way to worship me is to worship in spirit and in truth. First and foremost, spirit. It's not about our outward actions. It's not about us proving to other people that we're right with God because we come to church so often. Or we serve or I do this amount of work so now I'm worshiping God just on the outward. No, it has to be an inward work that flows outside. Again, that fountain that's pouring out in our lives. It's an inward work that has to happen. We need to worship him within our own spirit and within our own being. And then the second thing there is we must worship him in truth. The way we worship God, again, we can't make up our own rules. He's given us a handbook and a manual with how to worship him. And it's in truth. It's in God's word. It's living a biblical lifestyle. That's how you worship him. Okay, you know, me and God, we got our own thing going on, you know. I worship him on the boat, pull in the mahi, and thank you, Lord, right? And I, and I worship him, right? I go out there to the sandbar, and I just float, and I just think how I'm just floating in the grace of God. That's not how it works. You could do that too. That's great. That's awesome. That's wonderful, right? But we need to worship him in truth. And he gives us the prescription for how to worship him, right? Don't forsake the assembling of the brethren as is the manner of some. He says that. And the second thing, the last thing there is we must come to God in the truth of who we are. You see, lots of times we put on the different masks to impress the people around us or so that the people around us won't look down upon us. But how dare we come to the God, the creator of heaven and earth, the one that has formed us in our mother's womb, knows the day, the moment we are going to be born, how we are going to be born, what color, a little bit too blue or purple or red, right? He knows the day we're going to die, the amount of hairs on our head, and we think we can come to God with a facade. We think we can come to him with a lie. He says, no, if you want to worship me, you must worship me in spirit and in truth. You see, God, he never condemns anyone that comes to him. This woman that's living a terrible life, he doesn't condemn her there. But the moment that all her sins come out, that's when he addresses it. He addresses her sin afterwards. And the same is true for us. God, he's not going to keep us from coming to him. But the moment we come to him, he's going to say, hey, 
There's sin in your life that needs to be addressed. And if you want to come to me, I would love for you to come to me. This is the only place where you're going to have satisfaction and joy and peace and love. But you have to do it in spirit and in truth. Finally, on this topic of thirst and water, you can write down Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. It says, And the Spirit and the bride say, Come, and let him who hears, come, and let him who thirsts, come. Whoever desires, let him take the water of life freely. Again, family, when we come to seasons in life that we're thirsty, when we come to seasons in life where our emotions are about to get the best of us, turn to the Lord. Come. Come to the one that can give us those rivers of living water. Revelation 22, verse 17. We go back to Exodus 17, the second half here. In verse 7, it says, So he called the name of that place Massa and Meribah. Because of the contention of the children of Israel and because they tempted the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? That word Massa, it means temptation. That word Meribah, it means contention or rebellion. In Hebrews, it calls it the day of provocation, right? The day of rebellion with the people of God. And the Lord would remind the nation of Israel, Hey, you had a tough moment. Motion's got the best of you. Okay, that's fine. That's dandy. I provided for you. But from here on out, don't you ever treat me that way again. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, God says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him in Massa. In Deuteronomy 9, verse 22, it says, In Massa you provoked the Lord to wrath. And in Deuteronomy chapter 33, verse 8, it says, Your Holy One whom you tested at Massa and with whom you contended at the waters of Meribah. Again, the Lord is saying, this happened, that's fine. I fulfilled your need. I fulfilled your thirst. But from here on out, don't you mock me. Don't you doubt me saying, is God even with us right now? Has God left us? Has God forsaken us? G. Campbell Morgan, he says, this attitude among the Israelites was their great sin. In this time of difficulty, the children of Israel directly or indirectly doubted the loving presence and care of God among them. Under the stress of an immediate lack, these people doubted the one fact of which they had overwhelming evidence. Family, we have overwhelming evidence from God that He's with us. The mere fact that all of us are alive right now, that we haven't died or passed out that we're awake still right is evidence that God is with us we are not to doubt him if we're living a life of faith we can't be in a constant state of doubt of God and of his word and of who he is and his plans and purposes for us he's never left us he's never forsaken us may we not mock him and may we not doubt him may we not come to difficulties in life and say God are you even there Do you even exist? What's going on? May we never have that heart. In Deuteronomy chapter 31 verse 6, it tells us, Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear or be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, He is the one who goes with you. And He will not leave you nor forsake you. Again, sometimes the Lord brings us to these moments that our emotions are getting the best of us and we're tired and we're thirsty So that we would rely on Him. 
So we'd cry out to him. So we'd realize all the other junk, all the other fluff, it's just taking me away from my walk and relationship with God. Now we come to verse 8. First half of the rest stop, they have no water. Second half of the rest stop, they're about to go in their first battle. Right? We know the Lord, he took them the long route because he didn't want them to go to battle with the Philistines. But now in Exodus chapter 17 verse 8, it tells us now Amalek, they came and they fought with Israel at Rephidim. In Deuteronomy chapter 25, if you're quick, you can turn there. A couple of pages to your right, Deuteronomy chapter 25. It gives us a lot more insight on the battle and what happened. Instead of Moses here, he gives us the short version, right? Amalek came and fought with Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17, it gives us more insight in the way the Amalekites came and attacked the nation of Israel. And in Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 17, it says, Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you were coming out of Egypt. How he met you on the way and attacked your rear ranks. All the stragglers at your rear when you were tired and weary and he did not Fear God. Therefore it shall be when the Lord your God has given you rest from your enemies all around. In the land which the Lord your God is giving you to possess as an inheritance. That you will blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. You shall not forget. You see the Amalekites the way they came and fought the nation of Israel. They didn't fight them head on. They didn't warn them. They didn't tell them anything. They went around the back. To the children, the women, and the elderly. And that's where they attacked. That's where they came in and they decided to kill and take away from the nation of Israel. Adam Clark, he says, in the most treacherous and dastardly manner. For they came at the rear of the camp. The baggage, no doubt, was the object of their delight. But finding the women, children, the aged, and the infirm persons behind with the baggage, they smote them. And took away their spoils. You see family the enemy. He doesn't fight fair. The enemy he doesn't follow the rules of warfare. And the Amalekites. Amalek. They are a picture for us of the flesh. They're a picture for us of the flesh. And our flesh fights dirty. Our flesh waits until we're tired. And weary. And tired. And downtrodden. And that's when it attacks. Our flesh waits till the pillar of fire is there, right? The pillar of cloud is there. And until we're dragging behind and we're slowing down in our walk with God and we're not reading our Bible that much. And that's when the flesh attacks. So we need to be on guard. We need to be ready. Amalek was the grandson of Esau. Esau is the one, if you remember, right? He has the birthright, such a special privilege to carry on the spiritual mantle within the family. He comes home one day from hunting and he says, oh, I'm dying of hunger. His brother's making some lentils and he says, I'm dying of hunger. And he says, give me the bowl of lentils. And he says, I'm not giving it to you unless you give me your birthright. And he says, what good is it if I die? Just give me the lentils. You could take the birthright, right? I don't know how many of you are doctors here, but I think we all know you don't actually die after one day of hunger, right? Esau was just consumed with fulfilling his flesh. Whatever his flesh desired. Got to have it. Got to do it. And now Amalekites, they're the same way. They're just going after the flesh. And the flesh is always going to war with our spirit family. 
Sad to say, but that's just the way things are. In Galatians chapter 5, let's turn there really quick. Galatians chapter 5. If you're having um, some difficulty with your flesh lately, I encourage you to read Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 6 when you get home. Galatians 5 verse 16. It says, I say then walk in the spirit and you shall not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. For the flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. And these are contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery. That's the word pharmakia. That's where we get our word for drug use. Hatred, contentions, jealousy, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies, envy, And murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things, if you are habitually doing anything on this list, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ's have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live in the Spirit, let us also walk in the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another or envying one another. Family, we're going to be fighting our flesh till the day we see Jesus face to face. That's another one of the perks and things I'm looking forward to in heaven. No more battling the flesh. But as long as we're alive, it's the battle we're in. And we need to be careful that we are not feeding our flesh, but that we're actually fighting it. We need to be making sure that we're fulfilling the lusts of the spirit and not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, right? Wow, the Spirit lusts. Yeah, the Spirit has certain desires too. The Spirit desires that you'd spend time in the Word of God. The Spirit desires that you'd spend time in prayer. The Spirit desires that you'd be here in the assembling of the brothers and sisters in God's Word. The Spirit craves those things. The problem is the path of least resistance, it's feeding the flesh. Right? You're there and you're about to get into the argument, right? The wick was lit and now the Thoughts come up into the mind, right? The Spirit says, hey, just relax, Uh, right? A gentle word turns away wrath, and the flesh says, get him, right? (laughs) And we go back and forth, and where do we go to? Let's go, let's go, right? And then you start the fight, you say, oh, no, what did I do, right? That's what happens. Someone cuts you off in traffic, and the Spirit, oh, man, you should pray for this person. Maybe they're late to work. Maybe they had a family emergency. Pray for them. The Spirit Let's cut them off, right? That, that's what we do. And we are quick to turn to our flesh and fulfill the lusts of our flesh, right? The children of Israel, they have a desire. Do they turn to God? Do they turn to complaining? They turn to murmuring every time. But for us, again, you can take home this list here in verse 16 through 26 and say, Lord, what is the fruit of my life? Is it verse 19 through 21? Or Lord, is the fruit of my life verse 22 through 23? 
Because that's going to show you if you're on the right path when it comes to following the Lord and fulfilling, man, living a life in the spirit and not in the flesh. So they're fighting against Amalek. Back in Exodus 17, verse 9, Moses, he says to Joshua, right? This is the first time we see Joshua. Joshua translated into the Greek is Jesus, Joshua, right? So every time we see Joshua, he's a type of, of Jesus for us here in the Old Testament. So Moses, he turns, he says to Joshua, choose some men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I will stand on the top of the hill with the rod of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses said to him, and he fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. And again, it's interesting. We don't know if Moses is looking at certain people and like, that guy was about to hit me with a rock yesterday. <laughs> right? We don't know. That's, that's just me. Probably not Moses, right? But Moses, he's here and he's holding up his hands for the people of God. We read this, right? What does this really mean? For us to understand in today, it would be Moses sends one of us to go out and fight. And Moses says, hey, I'm going to go up to the mountain and I'm going to Get on my knees, I'm going to fold my hands and close my eyes while you go down there and fight. He's praying. Moses says, hey, I'm going to go up there, I'm going to lift my hands, I'm going to hold the rod of God, and I'm going to pray and intercede for you while you fight with Amalek. Now again, for us to remember where Moses has come from, what was the first act in Moses' rebellion against Egypt freeing the nation of Israel? He murdered a guy. He killed one of the Egyptian soldiers, right? And then he had to run for his life. And now he's at the point where he's faced with battle. Josephus tells us that he was a great warrior, a great general. And Moses says, Joshua, random guy who's been in slavery all his life. You go down there and fight. Here's a sword. Take this. Don't cut yourself. Don't poke your eye out, kid, right? And now you go down there, and I'm going to come up here and pray for you. And again, this is the first way that we battle the flesh. It's by being in prayer. Having an attitude of prayer. This is the type for intercessory prayer. That we should be praying for one another. We should be lifting up one another in prayer. Verse 12, but Moses, his hands became heavy, right? Maybe he worked the arms and shoulders the day before. So now his arms, man, they're just getting heavy. He's tired. So they took a stone. They put it under him. He sat on it. And Aaron and her, they supported his hands. One on one side and one on the other side. And his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. Again, we know that this is speaking of prayer. Because within scripture, prayer is not talked about as something that's like just easy and light. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 2 and verse 12, it says... Continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. In verse 12, it says, always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Prayer, if we're honest, it's hard work. Many of us, were not given to prayer. Our first instinct is not to, hey, let's sit down and pray about this or to spend a long time in prayer. We, if we're honest, we get tired in prayer. At the end of the night, you say, man, I'm going to have a quick prayer meeting before I go to bed. And it was a really quick prayer meeting, right? Just fall asleep. Just knock out. 
But then, same exact time, at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock, I'm just going to scroll on social media just for real quick, just a little bit. I'm just going to watch a couple of videos and see what happens. 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, whoa, what happens at the time, right? You're in a prayer meeting, there's a little bit of silence, and you think, dude, it has to have been like 10, 15 minutes of silence. And you look at your clock, what, it's been five minutes? I'm going to be here forever, right? And prayer is hard work. We grow tired within prayer, and that's why it's important to pray with other people around us. Not only are Aaron and her holding up his arms physically, but they are interceding with Moses for Joshua and for the soldiers fighting down below. So again, how do we fight the flesh? First and foremost, we need to pray. The second thing we need is the sword. We need to be able to handle the sword. And finally, it's the fellowship of the brethren. It wasn't just one guy praying, and it just wasn't one guy with the sword. We need the body of believers around us in what we're doing. Charles Spurgeon, he says, nevertheless, Joshua had to fight. Praying Moses did not eliminate what Joshua had to do. The battle was won with prayer, but also through normal instruments. The work of the army led by Joshua. Prayer is a downright mockery if it does not lead us into the practical use of means likely to promote the ends of which we pray. And I say that again. Prayer is downright mockery if it does not lead us into the practical use of means likely to promote the ends for which we pray. If we're praying for salvation for our country, but we're never talking to people about the gospel, it's pointless. If we're praying for salvation within our families, and yet we're never being bold with the gospel with our family, it's a mockery. What we're saying is, Lord, can you just float me around and make this happen? We need the sword in our hand. We need to be active in the battle. We can't just say, hey, Lord, you do everything, and let me just sit back here, take care of my comforts and my home and my selfishness, and, Lord, you take care of everything else. Lord, send revival to our country, but, man, just one more hour of Netflix. Not going to work. If we're praying for certain things, we should practically do the work to have those things happen as well. And now the glory won't come to us. The glory will all be given to God. But we need to fight. We need to pray and we need to fight. And what do we fight with? The sword, the word of God. We need to be in our word. We need to know the sword. Again, Jesus, when he's tempted by Satan, after 40 days and nights of fasting and praying, How does he fight the battle with Satan? All through scripture. He's just reciting scripture, right? Man shall not live on bread alone, but man, on the word of God. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. Everything is scripture right back at him. In 2020, I think there's something like 3 million new gun owners. And some people are super excited about that. I'm a little worried. Because if they don't train, bad things are going to happen. And it's the same thing with us. If we're not training with the sword... Bad things are going to happen. The next time our flesh comes out, we're going to be like Peter and just cut off our wife's ear by mistake, right? Instead of being filled with the Spirit and waiting and allowing the Lord to do that work. We need to be in our word. We need to know the sword. And finally, again, the gathering of believers, the fellowship of the brethren. Again, I was telling the 9 a.m. service, and you guys are similar. All the marriages here look incredible, You guys are sitting next to each other, quietly, hands around each other. Everybody's relaxed. There's no muertas back and forth between the husband and wife. No fighting here. You guys look perfect. But what happens when you get in the car? 
why were you falling asleep in service, right? Why don't you read your Bible? Why aren't you taking notes? Why are you on your phone the whole time? And the flesh starts. When we're in the group of believers, it keeps us from falling into the flesh. That's why it's easy to be holy at a retreat or at church and so difficult when we're at home alone with our family. Again, it's important to be in prayer, to know how to handle the sword, and to be with the body of believers. Verse 14, Exodus 17. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this for a memorial in the book and recount it in the hearing of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the remembrance of Amalek from under heaven. Again, Jesus gives us a truth speaking about the flesh in Matthew 26 verse 41. He told the disciples, watch and pray. And as you enter into temptation, the spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. It's easy to turn to the flesh. That's why we need to watch and pray. But the Lord tells Moses, hey, write this down. For a memorial for Joshua that he can be reminded of it later on. And all throughout Joshua, you see God telling Joshua, hey, be courageous. Be strong and courageous. The Lord is with you. Hey, be strong and courageous. The Lord is with you. Remember what I did with you with Amalek, your first battle after being in slavery for years, right? Verse 15, and Moses built an altar and called its name, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. Again, here God gives us the way we should deal with our flesh. And it's to kill it. Our flesh cannot be reformed. Our flesh cannot be given training wheels and we can just walk in the flesh and everything's going to be okay. We can't just take the teeth out of the flesh and fulfill the lusts and everything be fine. Let's turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, again, the warnings of the flesh, the way we should deal with our flesh. Again, simply, what's the flesh? Any thoughts, any desires that are contrary to God's word. Romans chapter 8, verse 5, it tells us, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Because the carnal mind is enmity against God, for it is not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, you're in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you, now if anyone does not have the Spirit of God, he is not his. And if Christ is in you, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Again, death for us is separation from God. That's what death is. 
So now if we're living according to our flesh, if we're living according to the thoughts and desires within our minds and within our hearts that are contrary to God's word, it will lead to separation from God. And separation from God, it's death. So what's the way that we deal with the flesh? We put it to death. We're supposed to crucify our flesh daily, right? God there in Exodus, how did he tell them to deal with these? He says, blot them out completely. That's the way we're to deal with our flesh family. Finally, verse 16, verse 15 and 16, Moses, he makes an altar there for the Lord. And he calls the name of the altar, the Lord is my banner. For he said, because the Lord has sworn, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. They're putting up their flag, their championship flag over their battle of Amalek. The banner that Moses and the children of Israel put up for their battle, their victory over Amalek, it was the Lord. All the credit went to God. Credit didn't go to Joshua or to Moses or to the sword or Aaron or her. All the glory went to God. In Psalm 60 verse 4, it says, You have given a banner to those who fear you. That it may be displayed because of the truth. Isaiah 11 verse 10. It says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to his people. For the Gentiles shall seek him and his resting place shall be glorious. Family, if you're here and you're a believer, Christ is our banner of victory. The only reason we can have victory over the flesh is because Jesus has already won that battle and all we have to do is walk in the truths that he's given us. He's defeated sin. He's defeated death. We just need to follow him and walk in him. And what's the joy? The joy for us is that God loves us. In Song of Solomon's chapter 2 verse 4, it says, He has brought me to his banqueting table and his banner over me is love. The way God looks at us, the banner, the championship flag over us, it's love. It's that he loves us and cares for us and that we love him in return. So again, family, when we're facing difficulties, when we're facing adversities, don't murmur and complain. Don't look to man to solve your problems. Turn to the Lord. When we're faced with those battles with our flesh, be in the spirit, be in the word, be in the fellowship of brothers and sisters. 